I'm going to get right into my message tonight. Um, my message tonight is one of instruction. There's times we just need to let God talk to us about today. All throughout the scripture, you'll find times when God would send, send a man or even a prophet at times to speak to a nation, to give them instructions when they're in a season sometimes when things were going on and they weren't sure what was happening, but God would send someone to affirm or I'll send someone to give them instruction of what to do in these times that you're now in. And God, I believe, wants to speak to us tonight through his word. I'm going to ask Brother Marvin, would you pray before I begin to speak, please? Amen. There is a lot going on in our nation at this time, but I'm going to tell you something. God's doing a lot of things in our nation as well. Can I get a witness? Well, tonight my sermon is going to be drawn from the book of Habakkuk. If you have your Bibles, you can go to the book of Habakkuk. In hopes of speaking to the body of believers to provide insight and hope to each and every one of us. See, a healthy church is a spiritual church. It's a church that's willing to follow God's instructions and also to receive God's correction. This is a defining moment, I believe, for the church. And we're going to have to learn, and yes, I'm implying we don't know how, but we're going to have to learn how to be the church in the midst of this chaos. It can't look like nor act like the church in the days of prosperity. We have a greater responsibility. It can no longer be a church guilty of substance abuse, where grace is the substance and we abuse it. It's constantly being proclaimed we're in an unprecedented times as a nation. But the God who knows our past and our future has already set precedents. By declaring what he did then, he'll do now. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He delivered his people then, he'll deliver his people now. This period in history in the back of days was a very troubling time for Israel. There was chaos, there was violence, injustice, and idolatry was very present that day. And the nation of Israel is in a rebellious stage in their history. And God's prepared to allow adversity, even use their enemy, to conquer their sinful practices and behavior in an effort to turn their hearts back to him. But Habakkuk struggles during this period of time to understand God's goodness in the midst of all the evil and injustice that's going on in his nation. Even as a prophet, he becomes discouraged. He sees it as evil is winning. He's discouraged because he be his... He's been praying, and he's been praying, and it seems as though nothing has changed and even getting worse. The major lesson we learned from the book of Habakkuk is this, is how to grow from a faith, from a faith of perplexity and doubt in the worst of times to the height of absolute trust in God. Because when we do that, we'll in return bring forth a refreshing upon a nation, even down to that of an individual believer that has become lethargic or perhaps even reckless in their relationship and dependence upon God. I believe that's where we're at it as a nation, as a church. It's where we must strive to do well during these times. And that is to learn to come to an absolute trust in God that will settle the perplexity of our faith. Because perplexity is the inability 
to understand something complicated. Faith only becomes a complicated thing, though, when human reasoning is used to try to understand it. Our finite wisdom is no match for God's infinite wisdom. So therefore, there are times it becomes perplexing to our faith. These times we're living in are perplexing for a man or a woman of faith. Currently, Christians are stunned by the recent turn of events in our nation. Their faith has been shaken. They're questioning God. They feel defeated. They feel crushed. They feel let down. But I've come to declare to the church, O daughter of Zion, the anchor holds, though the ship is battered, and the anchor holds in spite of the storm. And no matter what it looks like, no matter how dark it gets, we must learn how to stand up and declare by faith, I will trust the Lord even though he slay me. See, it becomes perplexing knowing what we know of Scripture and God's promises, and yet seemingly looks like everything around us is collapsing and is unfavorable to the body of Christ. And many are wondering this, are we not? God, where yet? And we're praying and we're fasting and we're interceding, yet look at the results common to our eyes. God, where you're at? Doubt is rising within many. But yet we must grow in faith even those troubling times. From a faith of perplexity and doubt to the height of a place of absolute trust in God. Our adversity we're facing does not have to destroy our faith, but actually it can be used to grow our faith. If handled right, restoring us back into a right standing with God. I told you months ago that there's going to be a reformation of the church. And reformation means making changes to something with the intention of setting it back on the right path. It means setting it right back in order. That's what God is doing. Hype and methods and programs and formalities and religious conduct won't work in this hour, church. This is an hour of reformation that will be led by a spiritual revolution. And all this manby, pamby, politically, culturally correct preaching to itching our ears is hogwash. It's of no spiritual effect. Why? Because it's not been birthed out of the fervent prayers of a righteous man, but out of the egocentric minds of men of flesh. And their undoctrinated speech is causing them to become spiritual assassins that are doing more harm than good to the gospel message. They're killing the message of hope all over again. They're crucifying truth all over again. And who is truth? Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's way too many who aren't trusting God in our troubles and are wondering where he's at. Yes, he promised us he'd be our very present help in times of trouble. And too many are trusting in self and man and news programs and celebrities and governments and chariots and horses. And in none of those things can you be absolute of in, in of all this uncertainty. And as a result, we've welcomed trouble to our nation. For there are consequences to sin and doubt. Psalms 118.8 says, says it's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. My assignment for tonight is for us to visit the book of Habakkuk and receive insight and instructions for this hour in which we live. From the lessons learned by Judah in the days of the prophet Habakkuk who witnessed these things. Let me say it one more time because it's worth repeating. The major thing with the book of Habakkuk is how to grow from a faith of perplexity and doubt to the height of having absolute trust in God. So Habakkuk's first complaint was, Israel become violent, unjust, corrupt, and the leaders aren't doing nothing about it. Total lawlessness was apparent. Sound a little like America? Habakkuk as a prophet had been continuously asking God to intervene, but nothing was changing. So let's dig in. Verse 1 of chapter 1. 
describes immediately the cause of this chapter. It says Habakkuk was a prophet who has had a burden because of what he visually saw in a vision proclaiming by prophecy he was delivered. Implying his burden came from what he was witnessing. And he saw what the people of his nation were fixing to go through, which was their enemies seemingly going to appear to destroy them unjustly. And what he witnessed was a burdensome to this prophet. A burden is a heavy, weighty thing. In this case, the injustice perceived was weighing heavy on the prophet's mind and his heart is perplexing to his faith. Why would God allow this to happen to a people he loved? That thought collided with his faith. Causing him to wonder, why would God choose judgment to solve Israel's problem instead of revival? After all, Habakkuk knew what it was like to live during a time of revival. As many as you have in this room. Many know what true revival looks like. You've experienced the manifestations of healing and deliverance before your very eyes. You were personally witnesses to the demonstration of his power. There was a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that resulted in his visitations in the hour of that time. Repentance often reversed the course of society, setting them back on a moral track. And some of you have been in camp meetings where you witnessed his presence, coming in the room like a fog. You have danced in the spirit around the old pot belly stove. You've seen his glory fill the room. And not just a few, but everyone in that room felt his presence. So had Habakkuk had these spiritual encounters with God. He'd lived through a period of national revival during King Josiah's reign to now a period of spiritual decline in a different hour of time. And now for him to see God's people and his nation slip into lethargy and sin, it was so disappointing to this man of God. And many of you seasoned saints feel that same way today, from where this nation was to where it is today. From where the importance of the church was to the insignificance towards it today is very disappointing to you. You lived during a time when God sent revival that led to repentance. And even though Habakkuk knew Israel had failed in the relationship with God, even though he knew they had done wrong, he still loved them to the point he still couldn't stand the thought of their enemy prevailing over them. So for him to see a vision of God allowing his people to be attacked by the enemy, it was heartbreaking. And it seemingly appeared God was silent and not interceding this time. He had so many times before. It was hard for him to understand. It was perplexing to his faith. So what was Habakkuk's burden? In this case, Habakkuk was weighed down by the fact he was surrounded by iniquity and perverse judgment among his people, and it seemed, say seemed. Seemed means it gave an impression of usually a physical appearance as though it was what it appears to be. To this prophet, it seemed or appeared as though God was turning a blind eye to it all. But was he? How many of you feel that way? How many of you feel today that God has turned a blind eye to what we're going through as a nation? How many of you today seeing what's going on around us right now? As we're surrounded by iniquity and perverse judgment and the appearance that evil is prevailing, corruption is escalating, morality is disappearing. How many of you are saying it seems like God has turned a blind eye to it all? If we'd be honest, many see it that way by how it physically appears. Day after day, you see evil appearing to be winning. You see sin abounding and innocent people being perversely judged. You see things with your very eyes physically taking place around you, and you feel hopeless. When verse 2, it tells what the prophet saw that burdened him so much and led to his verbal complaint to God. Here back is asking God, why is he delaying the judgment upon their enemy? He pleaded to God in prayer. I'm going to try to read his prayer in a way to dramatize his anguish. Now, I'm going to need an amen corner tonight right here to help me play this thing out. 
So I want you to follow my lead. And when I point to you, I want you to shout amen. Okay? So let's try it. You ready? There you go. Maybe Habakkuk's prayer has even been your prayer. Let's hear his prayer and let's find out. Verse 2. He prays. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. That probably gets needs a double amen. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumbered the righteous, so the justice has become perverted. Amen, amen, and amen. Hallelujah. I just read in Scripture what many of you are feeling at this very hour, and you've been praying. Habakkuk saw trouble and sin everywhere, from personal relationships to the courts of law, to corruption, and even to deceit. He saw his nation was divided because of these things. Oh, God. I see it too. This distressed him so much that he cried out to God and asked God why he didn't bring judgment and immediately correct things. Let me ask you tonight. Have you ever asked God to bring correction to someone or something? And when he did, you didn't like how he did it? That's what we're fixing to deal with in this chapter. Not only in this chapter, but also deal with as a nation. I believe many are praying like never before. I believe churches are praying, prayer groups are praying, intercessors are praying, preachers and teachers and prophets are praying. And we're crying out to God, asking him to bring judgment upon the wicked to correct our nation, and we should. Because only God can do this feat. But church, be prepared. We may not like how he does it, but this is what we got to learn today. That however he chooses to do it, when we've asked him to do it, we have got to absolutely trust him. By believing he has a plan, that he's in control, and realizing this isn't. The first time he was allowed to, he allowed it to look like the enemy was winning, only to destroy them at an appointed time when he's done using them for the greater good. All the time that he thought they were in control, they'd finally gained the power over God's people they longed for. That all the time it appeared God was being mocked, he was actually just using them, though, church. Church, God will not be mocked. Not back then, not today, not tomorrow, never, ever, 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 ever. And I speak that today with everything going on and how it all appears to say, just wait and see who gets the victory and wait and see who wins in the end. The Lord hears a back as birth of an anguishing prayer. The Bible declares he hears our prayers and that when we pray, he answers. That's a promise he makes. Well, in verse 5, he answered Habakkuk as he promised. The Lord replied to his prayer. Then in church, I hear God replying to our prayers now with the same reply he gave Habakkuk that day when he answered him and answered his prayers. I believe he's given the same reply to the church today he gave then. His reply was, and he's saying today, as he did in Habakkuk 1, verse 5, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. 
In other words, by what you see, you don't believe I'm doing anything. But I am. Watch and see. It's so far from what you think I should or would be doing. In other words, you don't have a clue what I'm up to. And so many think they do. They're hearing voices. You're hearing voices all around you, but be careful of the voices that you're hearing. God said, if I told you, you wouldn't even understand it. But sit back and watch and be astounded by my ways that are above your ways and my thoughts that are above your thoughts. I will break through for you in a way that will not only astound you, but I'll surprise you and your enemy. Children of the Most High, hear me good this night. You're criticizing me, expressing me you don't absolutely trust me. Because you don't see it, I must not be doing nothing about it. Leading you to believe that what's happening must be out of my control, thus saith the Lord. Would anybody in here be feeling that way today? about we as a nation and what we're experiencing. And you're wondering where God is. Why isn't he doing something? Does he not see what we see? Lord, if he doesn't do something by such and such date, we're toast. They win. Well, let me tell you something. God's got a lot more on his mind than just the elections destroying our nation. To him, an election doesn't vote him out, but the sins of a nation keep him out. An election doesn't destroy a nation. It's the sinful hearts of the people that do. Have you ever considered with what has happened, this could be all part of his plan? That'd be hard to understand, wouldn't it? It would be perplexing to your faith, wouldn't it? No difference than it was in the back of day. There's a lot that's going on in people's minds today. As to say, Master, don't you care that we perish? So many questions. Excuse me. Then and so many questions now. Let me remark on a few of the things God just said to Habakkuk. He told him he'd be utterly astounded. God told the prophet, don't worry about it. Look at the surrounding nations, and from them will come a nation that will be my instrument of judgment on sinful Judah. I'm not certain what the instrument of judgment is going to be for sinful America, but I assure you there's going to be one. He told them, I will work a work in your days, which you'll not believe if I told you. Get ready, church. God was speaking, though, of a work of judgment, so astounding that Habakkuk would have a hard time believing how could something so bad be used for their good. And God told him, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. When they eventually came against Judah, they came as sent by the Lord. It wasn't that they themselves did not want to come, but God allowed their sinful desire to conquer Judah, to come to fruition as part of a plan for Judah to turn back to God. If God had not allowed them to do it, they never could have conquered Judah and exiled God's people out of the promised land. Now, as hard as it is to understand this was God's plan, as much as it appeared the enemy was winning, it was all for a greater purpose. This was God's plan. It's even hard for a prophet like Habakkuk to understand why God would use a more wicked nation to correct a wicked nation. See, this, see his human reasoning was perplexing to his faith. In verse 6, God goes on to Habakkuk what he's up to and why. He says, it is true. I'm sending the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation, to your nation of Judah. The Chaldeans were ruthless and violent. They're going to seize and possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Habakkuk, I'm allowing this, and I know you have trouble understanding this. I told you you would. But you're going to have to absolutely trust me and believe that I'm in control and it's for the greater good of your nation. I'm allowing to bring correction to my people. They are a violent and perverse and lawless people, but through this destruction, through their oppression, I'm actually bringing my people back to me, to a place where they'll have no choice but to once again trust me 
and not a man nor a government. Upon hearing this, the prophet Habakkuk responds back with complaint of God's plan once again with a different approach. Habakkuk begins to remind God of who he is. Oh, Lord, my God, are you not the Holy One? He even felt the need to remind God, your eyes can't behold evil and you can't just simply look on wickedness. And then challenge him once again about his methods. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And why do you hold your tongue when the wicked devours a righteous person? Why, God? Why don't you do something? I don't understand. Habakkuk has a hard time understanding his plan as God had told him he would. Our finite mind is no match for him, church. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I'm going to go and stand my watch on the rampart and wait to see what he will say to me. Then the Lord answered him again with instruction. He says, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision yet for a pointed time, at the end it will speak, it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. God told him to write the vision, what he saw, let people read it. It's going to happen at an appointed time. He also assures the back of it, even though he will use the Babylonians as the instrument for Israel's punishment, he too will punish Babylon also for everything they do to Israel when they destroy them as well. What God showed Habakkuk was, the proud won't survive it, but during these times, the just will live by faith. In other words, if they live by absolute trust in him. And God is saying today, church, these times are going to get rough. Your faith is going to become perplexed, and you're going to have trouble at times understanding things. But what I'm allowing is going to be for the greater good of this nation. When my work is complete, I will set the nation back in order and the church back in order. A reformation will take place, but you're going to have to have absolute trust me that I am in control. And when I'm finished with the work I'm allowing the enemy to do, that will be the day and the hour in which I will destroy what tried to destroy you. In other words, there's a point of time for all of this. That's why I keep saying, I believe revival is going to spring up right in the midst of all this darkness. That there's going to be pockets, places of refuge, where the hurting, the lost, and the undone can find refuge and safety. And that's the responsibility of the church in these dark times. When things get worse, they're not going to have to be begged to come in. They're going to come running in, and what will they find? And God is going to bring his people out of darkness into his marvelous light. To where the light will grow as faith once again grows eventually, utterly dispelling the darkness around us. It's then it will turn into a national last day revival, a great awakening. All of it's going to be orchestrated by God for the good of his people. And we're going to have to learn how to be the church for this hour. Church, get ready to be astonished. For I will do a work in your day. I'm not sure what all God's going to allow our enemies to do in the days to come, but just remember what he told Habakkuk. There are only instruments of my judgment on Judah, not to destroy them, but to save them, to be used, to turn a sinful nation back around. Do you know why God is going to shake everything on this earth? To get your mind off the temporal things and to get you focused on the eternal things that really matter. So we will be a people prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ and church, it's coming soon. And the revival we're all looking for is for the purpose of harvesting of souls. Do we honestly know how many churches aren't harvested-minded? It's got to change. 
Whatever we go through in the coming days, the just are going to have to live by faith. And God says they're going to have to be absolutely trust me instead of accusing me. You're going to have to pronounce by faith. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know our God is working on our behalf. I may not see it, but by faith, I know it. He promised he'd never leave us, nor would he forsake us, that he's for us and that he's not against us. He's got a plan. And if I ever knew it, I would probably have trouble understanding it. And God says, regardless, whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like, you got to trust me in return. I will astound you. You will declare, I never thought it would happen like that. I never dreamed it would take that. A couple of things we can learn from back as days to help us better understand today is number one, even when things seem chaotic, God is still in control. And God wants what's best for us even when it's hard. Totally understanding how God works is not our responsibility, but trusting him is. Look how Habakkuk concludes. Look at the reason he comes to. Look how he approaches the hour before him. He declares, though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and though there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God and my Savior. Are you ready to come to that place as the body of Christ and to come to that place of absolute trust? No matter what the government does, no matter what the economy does, I will rejoice in the Lord. That can only be done when you come to the place you absolutely trust him. No matter what state you find yourself in. It was the Apostle Paul who referenced this in Philippians 4 and 12. He said, I know what's, what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any kind in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He said, whether I'm a base or abounding, I'm content in whatever state I find myself in, I've learned how to be. He even declared it was a secret. We all know when something is a secret, that means not too many people know it. In this case, not too many people know how to do that during these times. The life we're now living is difficult. At some point, most of us have wondered, where is God? We may have even thought it seems like evil's winning and God is silent. And we as believers now have a choice to make as to how we respond to the difficulties in our lives which may even become more difficult in the days to come. Will we choose in spite of what may come my way, yet I will rejoice in the Lord today? That in itself is very difficult to do for many. That's why we must be willing to learn how to absolutely trust God, and we must learn the secret of it. Because the prophet back had an attitude worth noting. After all his consideration responses he could have had, his final choice was he decided to rejoice in spite of the season he was in. Has anybody in here decided that yet? Come what may, hell or high water, I will rejoice in the Lord. Give God praise. Habakkuk was troubled by the moral and the spiritual decline of the world around him. Much like many of us today, I know I'm disturbed and concerned about it. But do you know what even troubled him more so was God's response to it all. He was bothered with, why would God use the wicked nation of Babylon to punish Judah? His faith became perplexed because of God's decision. He did not understand God's plan. However, though, 
he still chose to rejoice because he had learned to rely on the steadfast love and the faithfulness of the God he trusted. Just because he couldn't understand it, he didn't rebel against it. He just took the approach, I don't understand this, but I've learned to trust God because I know he's righteous in all of his ways. And the second thing was, our circumstances should not dictate whether we are joyful. According to Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This talks of a peace that we can have in the midst of our troubles that we, we can't, when we can't even understand in times like this. It tells us his peace guards our hearts so that our joy cannot be destroyed. This is the kind of peace that enables us to be joyful even in the most difficult of times. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me share with you one of the greatest examples of having absolute trust in God. One of the most powerful demonstrations I've heard of faith, of having absolute trust in God. A historical writer named Josephus tells of this account of a man who became known as John the Revelator. John, in old age, ended up in prison like so many believers in his time did. You see, John lived in a time in Rome when they were persecuting Christians. They were killing Christians in Rome at that time, they say, a hundred a day. A hundred a day for four long years. They would ask the Christian, do you believe in Jesus? Then if they would say yes, then today you die. This is not fictional. Folks, it's recorded in history. If they came and drug you out of your house tonight, what would you say to their demand? Deny him or be crucified. Many think they know. John hears the footsteps that day of the Roman soldiers coming to get him. They took him, they walked him up a ramp. But he's still got a short time to change his mind if he wills. But he just keeps climbing the ramp. Looking down, he sees below him a six-foot deep pot of boiling water waiting for him. One of the Roman soldiers takes him to the edge of the blank. Threatens him once again, says, this is your last time, John. All you got to do is deny Jesus. And John shouts, I can't do it. I can't deny him. They scourge him. Don't you know how painful this is going to be, John? And John cries out, yes, 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 I know. But I promised him I would die for him. And he promised me I wouldn't die till I see him. I got to trust him regardless of what I got to go through. You know, inside him, there had to be a concerning thought, though. Oh, God, where are you at? I'm taking a stand. I'm going to absolutely trust you. I'm not backing down like the others. I made you a promise, and you made me a promise, so where are you? They take John. They throw him in the pot of boiling water. And Josephus gives a very descriptive writing of what he saw. He said all of John's facial hair, all the hair on his body, and all the hair on his head was instantly gone. That John flopped around in the boiling oil as the soldiers stood and they laughed and they mocked him. And Josephus said he looked like a porpoise splashing in the water. Describing his skin had become that of a dolphin. And he's splashing around and he doesn't even look human anymore. And history records as the Roman soldiers with their hardened hearts watched, something took place much to their surprise. All of a sudden in that room, the laughter ceased. And the soldiers began to watch intensely. Something was happening before their very eyes. They had never experienced before. Although the water was scalding, John was not dying. 
What it should have been over in a matter of a few minutes was an ending. John wouldn't die. They had boiled a hundred a day. What's going on here? Why is this man not dying? No one survives this much pain. The soldiers could no longer take it to the point. The one in charge hollered, stop it. Get a stick. Pull him out. And they pull this raw piece of meat out with a stick. And they lead him over the side of the pot. And he falls to the ground. He's burnt beyond recognition, but he's still alive. Where are you, Lord? He cries out in his mind. And one soldier out of compassion throws a coat on him. They order for them to immediately take him away. So they took John, the man who wouldn't die, to a deserted island of Patmos, left him there to die all by himself, never to see his family again. And he's laying on the island alone, praying. And the Bible records that all of a sudden, he hears a voice behind him, and it's recorded. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am he that was dead, and I am alive. John, John. He said, yes, Lord. And the promise came to pass as he promised. He saw Jesus before he died because of his absolute trust in God. John, yes, Lord. Let's write the book of Revelations. Let's tell the world what's going to happen in the last days. And for the next 10 years in the island, all by himself, John wrote the book of Revelations with those mauled hands of his. That's one of the greatest examples of having absolute trust in God. That regardless of what you've got to go through to receive his promises, nothing could stop nor convince him to deny Christ. Why? Because he had an absolute trust in God. And God had made him a promise, 1 John chapter 4, that he would see him before he dies. And not even the threat of a boiling pot could break his trust in God. God didn't show up and rescue him from it. To me, that's perplexing. When a man exercises faith at the point he did, and then he lets him be thrown into a boiling pot, that caused him to suffer, but they couldn't kill him because God had a plan for his life. Because John had a promise, an absolute trust in God's promise, and as a result, look what one, only one man ever had the privilege of experiencing. Church, none of us are certain what's ahead of us, what we might have to face in the coming days. God may elect for us to go through it instead of rescuing us from it. But if he allows us to go through it, we have his promise that he'll go through it with us. Like he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they faced a fiery furnace because they would not bow down. They had every opportunity to bow. But instead they said, we'll not bow down. Our God will deliver us. But even if he don't, we still won't bow. They absolutely trusted God by faith. And God didn't stop them from going through the fire, but he went through the fire with them. And as a result of their sacrifice and trusting him, God did an even greater work that day. A whole nation was turned back to God. Now, I said in the beginning of my message, I'm about to close, that we must learn how to grow from a faith of perplexity and doubt in the worst of times to the height of absolute trust in God. That will in return bring forth a refreshing upon a nation, even down to that of an individual believer that has become lethargic and perhaps even reckless in its relationship and its dependence upon God. I've talked about our nation and what the church must be to it at this time. But now for just a moment, I want to talk to you individually about your faith. A lot of you are finding your faith so perplexing in these times 
You have so many questions, so many misunderstandings. You're going through so many things you never thought you would have to, and you're wondering, God, where are you at? You're struggling to absolutely trust God. You can trust him this far, but you can't trust him that far. You're not willing to go through anything. If you must, you're willing to compromise to avoid having to. Yet a lot of you have promises of your life the church as a whole does. And if we have absolute trust in God and we're willing to go through whatever it takes, we too will receive his promises. A lot of people don't want his promises. It's going to cost them something more than what they're willing to do. When things that are required to endure don't look like things God would require, such as being beaten, shipwrecked, tortured, crucified. When it becomes perplexing, too hard to figure out why God would allow this, but after the attack is over, the test is over, and you've stood in absolute trust in God, the reward is incomprehensible. You find out that what you went through wasn't being allowed to destroy you, but it was actually being allowed to strengthen you, designed to do a greater work through you. We judge God more by what we face than by what he promises. And for too long, the church has won revival for the wrong reasons. We want it for the church that saved the gifts for ourselves. But church, God wants it for the lost to be saved, to save a nation. And there's a lot of us in here tonight who are going through things, things we don't understand, things that have caused our faith to become perplexed. We don't understand what's going on. We don't know why God hasn't intervened yet. We don't know why he's choosing or allowing things to happen like they are. But who here tonight will say, in spite of what I'm going through, I will rejoice in the Lord? Who would say, I've come to the decision tonight. I'm going to choose to rejoice in the Lord. I realize I haven't trusted him as much as I should. I'm not going to rejoice because of my circumstances, but rejoicing because of the God who's in control of my circumstances. I'm going to trust that even though I don't see him, I know he's working. Even when I don't feel him, he's working. I'm going to believe that he never stops. And I've decided tonight I'm going to be absolutely start to trust him. In the midst of it all, for what lies ahead for our nation, we're going to have to come to this place of absolutely learning to trust him. If it takes God using our enemies to turn this nation back to God, so be it. Even though you don't understand it, just trust him and God will see us through. Isaiah 43 and 2, he says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I hear the Lord saying, palace of praise, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will do a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. Come on, somebody. I say rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Tell your neighbor, I see what you see. I feel what you feel. But I choose to rejoice in the Lord. Then tell the God you serve, astound us, O Lord, with your presence. The prophet Habakkuk, he prayed, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, God, remember mercy. He was praying, Lord, I've heard all about who you are. I've heard about your mighty acts in the earlier times that you've done them for the forefathers. Now do what you did for them now for us because I know you can. I mean, here we are closer than ever to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's very apparent prophetic fulfillment and signs project we're living in the last days. 
And based upon where our country is now headed, headed, be assured, the hearts of men and women will be wax cold and even more so. So does anyone believe that Christ loves us enough to be, deal with our sins and hopes to prepare us for his coming? Does anyone believe he's going to prepare a bride for the bridegroom? Has he not promised that? Does anyone believe it's his desire before the sickle is placed to the harvest that he wants the harvest to be plentiful? Does anyone believe that he truly loves the people of the United States? If so, let me hear you say amen. Hallelujah. God's fixing to do some amazing things in the body of Christ. Would our musicians come, please? Church, we cannot claim to be a glorious church just in the good times. We've also got to claim we're a victorious church in the times of defeat, in the times of national unrest, in the times of economic turmoil. Victory is cheap in prosperous times, but it's priceless in the dark times. We can either fold in our defeat or we can rise up in our faith and declare the God of the mountains is still the God of the valleys. See, it's easier to serve God in the good times, but who will serve him through those perplexing times that are shaking not only our nation, but our faith? Many already through these times have found they weren't as spiritually sound as they thought. Yet through it all, you're actually growing stronger each day. Christianity is not a passive profession. It's a passionate confession of faith. It's recognizing, Lord, we're nothing without you. Our whole being is dependent upon you. I must everyone here, if you'd stand, please.